The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Optimally Sequencing Modern TKIs in GIST. Expert perspectives from an interprofessional sarcoma team. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash CPH860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to this educational activity, Optimally Sequencing Modern TKIs and GIST, Expert Perspectives from an Interprofessional Sarcoma Team. I'm Dr. Michael Heinrich from the OHSU Knight Cancer Institute in Portland, Oregon, and I'm joined here today with Dr. Margaret Von Maren from the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. Also joining me is Melissa Hohas, who is an oncology nurse specialist and an integral member of the care team, which is focused on managing patients with sarcoma and related malignancies at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Thank you, uh, Meg and Melissa, for joining us. Glad to be here. Today, we're going to be discussing how to optimally treat and manage your patients with advanced and or metastatic GIST. We have here an expert panel of oncologists and a nurse specialist, all necessary members in our interdisciplinary cancer team that cares for our patients with GIST. In recent years, we've seen marked advancements uh, in the treatment paradigm of GIST with the recent approval of repretinib and avapretinib. As we are now able to prolong and individualize care for our patients, we also face much more complex management considerations such as uh, proper treatment selection and sequencing, as well as management of symptoms and adverse events. Therefore, the goal is, of this activity is to ensure that we collaborate as a team to effectively incorporate these modern TKIs into our clinical practice. Please remember to download the practice aids, which are point-of-care tools that we develop for this program. You'll want to refer to them throughout the activity. So let's get started. GIST is the most common uh, GI sarcoma. It arises from pacemaker cells in the GI tract. It can arise anywhere along the GI tract, but is most common in the stomach, followed by the next most common site, which is a small intestine. There is a similar uh, male and female incidence. The highest incidence is in the age group of 40 to 60 years of age. GIST in the United States has an incidence of 14.5 per million annually and a prevalence of 129 per million. Prior to the year 2020, the three approved TKIs, imatinib, sunitinib, and regorafenib, which were all type 2 multikinase inhibitors. These type of inhibitors bind to the ATP pocket of KIT or PDGFRA only when it's in the inactive formation. A problem was that secondary mutations in the activation loop shift the protein conformation towards the active state, which reduces the ability of these drugs to, to bind the inhibitor. Also, complex intra and intertumor heterogeneity of resistance mechanisms uh, make global tumor control difficult. So recently, two modern uh, tyrosine kinases have been approved to address treatment resistance. These include repretinib, which is, provides broad-spectrum kit inhibition and is currently approved in the fourth line or later, 
and avapritinib, which is a highly targeted but narrow spectrum inhibitor with activity against PDGFRA D842V and currently approved for just harboring PDGFRA exon 18 mutations, including the most common form of that mutation, which is D842V. In the first half of the activity, we'll review the latest data to support the use of these modern TKIs for GIST. In order to adequately manage these um, TKIs across the treatment lines, it's important to that we sequence them appropriately, but also that we carefully manage uh, side effects in order that patients may stay on the adequate dose and be treated optimally duration-wise. To emphasize this, in the second half of the activity, we will discuss the importance of TKI management as well as practical considerations that help us to individualize our care for patients with GIST. So in the first uh, part of this activity, we'll be talking about a new wave of selection and sequencing treatments for unresectable and metastatic GIST. GIST has at least 10 molecular drivers of these uh, activating mutations of KIT are the most common, found in 75% of GIST. The next most common targetable uh, abnormality are mutations of PDGFRA found in 10% of GIST. The next largest selection of the PI, but currently not optimally treated with by any modality, are SDH-deficient GIST and then a variety of other molecular drivers, including, including loss of NF1 or activating mutations of BRAF are found in less than 1% of GIST each. The mutations can influence the uh, type of GIST that we see in different organ locations. So for example, in the stomach, PDGFRA mutations are relatively common, it's seen in 15 to 18% of cases, whereas KID exon 9 mutations are rare. The type of mutations can influence uh, the type of GIST which are seen in different anatomic locations uh, throughout the GI tract. For example, in uh, gastric GIST, KID exon 11 mutations, PDGFRA mutations, and SDH mutations uh, predominate. SDH mutations are not found um, with any frequency outside of the stomach nor are PDGFRA mutations. In the small bowel, we see a common occurrence of KID exon 9 mutations in 20 to 25%, which as we will discuss later, has some implications for therapy. Um, and in rectal GIS are uh, KID exon 11 predominant, but KID exon 9 mutations are also seen. So just to briefly overline, uh, overview the management of advanced metastatic GIST, the important starting point is a mutation analysis to define the molecular abnormality. As discussed previously, there are many drivers, some of which are targetable by our conventional agents and some of which are not. The most important initial branch point is to determine that a kit mutant just is present, which will then start the sequence of kit inhibitors, imatinib, followed by sunitinib, followed by regorafenib, followed by repretinib, and we will discuss all of these. Uh, alternatively, if the, the GIST has a PDGFRA mutation, especially one of exon 18, we would move to avapritinib for uh, first-line therapy.
we won't be discussing uh, multidisciplinary care with surgery for advanced metastatic gist, but this is certainly a consideration uh, in many uh, sarcoma centers. Meg, could you review the data uh, that led to the approval of the three previously approved agents, imatinib, sunitinib, and regorafenib? I'd be happy to. So imatinib was studied in a variety of trials starting from phase one through phase three. And this PFS Kaplan-Meier curve represents data from the ERTC-led trial comparing 400 milligrams daily to 800 milligrams or 400 milligrams twice daily. And I think the important take-home point in these patients who had advanced unresectable gist is that the dose of imatinib to a large extent really does not uh, make a significant difference. And so we typically say 400 milligrams a day is the standard of care for these patients. The median progression-free survival in this trial uh, was 1.7 and two years respectively. Many people have asked the questions when this drug was first developed is, do we need to continue therapy forever? And the French sarcoma group did a series of cohort studies evaluating the benefit in patients whose disease had been controlled or had complete response in which they stopped imatinib therapy at either one year three years or five years, and then saw the outcomes of these patients. And what you can see at all time points is that the dark blue curve, which is on top, has a a superior progression-free survival compared to the light blue curve, which represents the patients who stopped their therapy. Now, interestingly, over time, that uh, progression-free survival seems to improve, particularly when you are out at five years. And this may just represent that we've selected out patients who have the more imatinib-sensitive types of tumors, such as exon 11, and we've lost patients who may have exon 9 um, that tend to be more aggressive and have a uh, somewhat shorter progression-free survival on imatinib standard dosing. Dose escalation has been evaluated in patients who have progressed following 400 milligrams a day. Uh, and this progression-free survival demonstrates that patients can have some meaningful benefit to increasing the dose to 800 milligrams a day um, of about a medium of three months. This progression-free survival curve analyzes the benefit of increasing imatinib from 400 milligrams to 800 milligrams a day. And you can see that the median PFS was three months. And analyzing mutations, patients who have exon 9 do seem to potentially a better benefit of the higher dose. And some of us will have patients escalate to 400 milligrams twice daily or 800 milligrams if we know the patient has an exon 9 mutation. After imatinib was approved, we then had sunitinib. And sunitinib also targets KID and PGFR, but also includes VEGF receptor as one of its target. It has many more targets than imatinib. And you can see in this randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that patients on sunitinib had an improved time to progression as well as overall survival probability. 
The median PFS for sunitinib was 27.3 weeks compared to 6.4 weeks with overall survival benefit, again, um, noted that was uh, not statistically significant, but there did seem to be a difference overall. So this is the approved second-line therapy. Notably, when sunitinib was tested, it used 50 milligrams four weeks on and two weeks off, as is used in renal cell carcinoma. Based on patients developing symptoms during the two-week break, as well as early studies that showed reactivation of metabolic activity by PET scans during the break. A study was evaluated sunitinib 37.5 milligrams daily. This was a phase two study that did not compare it to the standard dosing, but you can see that the median PFS in this group of patients was 34 weeks, which is comparable, if not slightly longer, and the median survival was also comparable. So this is a dosing schedule that is commonly used in many patients for management of advanced GIST. Regorafenib was the third drug approved for advanced metastatic GIST. This, again, was a placebo-controlled trial. It was randomized two to one. And again, regorafenib proved to be superior to placebo in terms of progression-free survival. In terms of overall survival, there was not a significant difference, and this trial did have crossover to regorafenib. The median PFS for regorafenib was 4.8 months, and again, patients on placebo had a very short progression-free survival of approximately one month. So we're going to move on and talk about the new agents, and Melissa, would you uh, introduce the agents? Thank you. So 2020 was an exciting year with two new TKIs approved for GIST. Repretinib was FDA approved in May of 2020 and has coined the switch control kinase inhibitor or switch pocket inhibitor. It provides broad spectrum inhibition of KIT and is indicated for patients in the fourth line setting. Avapritinib was FDA approved in January of 2020 and is the first therapy approved for patients with GIST harboring a PDGFR-alpha exon 18 mutation. And I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Heinrich, who will discuss the mechanism of action of repretinib. So uh, repretinib is unique um, compared to the kinase inhibitors we've discussed thus far. It's a direct switch pocket inhibitor. So the all the other drugs that we discuss, imatinib, sunitinib, and regorafenib, bind into ATP binding pocket, um, which so they compete. They compete out ATP, and then ATP is the energy source for the kinase. In contrast, repretinib binds to the switch pocket. So the kinase has both an inactive conformation in which the activation switch is, and shown in blue, is pointed to the left, but in order to activate and signal that that whole uh, activation switch needs to switch over to the right. But repretinib fits into sort of the hinge there and it keeps the movable uh, activation switch from moving from left to right or inactive to active um, respectively. 
compared to type 1 or classical type 2 inhibitors, repretinib binds potently and durably to KIT and PDGFRA, and at least in vitro inhibits all mutant forms of KIT, which have been described and relevant uh, to drug resistance in GIST. So, May, could you discuss the Invictus study and uh, the clinical results uh, with repretinib and advanced GIST? I'd be happy to. This trial was a study comparing repretinib to placebo. It was randomized two to one and was double-blinded. Patients who were previously treated were enrolled, and they had to receive all of the approved agents at least, and some patients had received more than that. Patients were stratified based on whether they'd received three or more prior therapies, as well as by their performance status, ECOG zero versus one or two. And the primary endpoint of this study was progression-free survival, along with multiple secondary outcomes, as noted on the slide. First, let's look at the patient characteristics. We can see that uh, these patients had a median age of 59 or 60, uh, which is what we anticipate in this patient population. There were slightly more men in the study, and interestingly, uh, in many studies, we do see that, and even though we think that the incidence is approximately the same. The majority of patients in this study were white, with about half of the patients coming from the United States. Most patients had a good performance status, and the patients had, most of them, only received three prior lines of therapy, and this actually was pre-specified in the protocol. When we look at the breakdown of mutations, the most common primary mutation was exon 11, followed by exon 9, with a variety of others which were much less common. The primary endpoint for this study was progression-free survival, and you can see that repretinib was superior to placebo with a progression-free survival of 6.3 months with placebo one month, and this was statistically significant. Looking at response rate, the response rate for repretinib was approximately 12% in this study, and if we look at progression-free survival over time, we can see that 50% of the patients had not progressed at six months, approximately 22% at 12 months, and there were still patients ongoing with disease control at 18 months. The duration of response of patients who did respond was quite long with the uh, median described as 14.5 months. In a subgroup analysis, looking at factors having to do with the patient prior therapy, where the patient was derived, as well as race and performance status, we can see that there were no factors that did not favor repretinib in terms of benefit for the patient compared to placebo. Looking at overall survival, repretinib patients had an overall survival median of 18.2 months versus placebo patients where it was 6.3 months. Some of the placebo patients were able to cross over to receive repretinib, and their median overall survival was 10 months. This shows that repretinib is a very effective option for fourth-line therapy in patients, and as will be discussed, this is regardless of mutation status. 
This spider plot gives you a sense of the length of time that patients who responded to repretinib continued to have disease control. And you can see in some patients, this has been quite lengthy, extending beyond two years. So looking at the side effects noted on the Invictus trial, there are some side effects that are common with repretinib. And first is alopecia. We don't see this in many other uh, TKIs, and so it's one of interest. Patients can have fatigue, nausea. But in general, if you look at grade three side effects with repretinib, the incidence is quite low with the exception of um, abdominal pain, which may or may not reflect the drug itself. Most treatment adverse events were grade one or two. The com common uh, events greater than 15% um, which were treatment-related, are shown in the table. And there are additional grade three and four treatment emergent adverse events in greater than 4% of patients included hypophosphatemia and lipase. And most of these, uh, while important on a piece of paper looking at the lab value, in most patients were asymptomatic. When we get to our next section, we will uh, have Melissa discuss in more detail the management of these side effects. Stay tuned. Mike, can you talk about the distribution of mutations in the Invictus trial? Yes, so this was quite an interesting aspect of Invictus um, because it incorporated both uh, tumor biopsies, which is a traditional way of um, looking for resistance mutations, but also uh, liquid biopsies, which uh, are circulating tumor DNA. Shown here is um, protein residues that were mutated and the height of the, the stacked circles represents the number of patients with the different mutations. You can see that in general, the most common sites of mutations were exon 13, particularly the V654A mutation or exon 17 with a broader distribution of affected uh, codons, including uh, 809, 816, 820, 822, 823, and 829. A subgroup analysis was uh, performed to look whether or not there was any particular mutation profile or combination of mutations in a profile that would predict for greater or lesser activity of, of repretinib. And as you can see here, um, Clearly for all patients, repretinib was better than placebo, but for all of the listed combinations of any exon 11 paired with anything else or any kid exon 9 or breaking out the resistance mutation, any 13, any 17, irregardless of what else was found, you can see that uh, repretinib um, provided benefit uh, superior to placebo. This study results so therefore show that um, this was a complex patient population with heterogeneous mutation uh, mutations determined both using tissue and liquid biopsy, but repretinib provided clinically meaningful uh, benefit across the mutation subgroups when compared with placebo. Therefore, these, re these results support the use of repretinib as a fourth-line therapy in patients with advanced GIST irrespective of what mutations may be found uh, on biopsy or circulating tumor DNA analyses.
So with the use of repretinib in the fourth line, we now have the problem of patients who progress on repretinib in consideration of potential fifth line setting. It should be noted that there are no approved agents for the fifth line, so everything I'll be discussing is off-label. Drugs that have been studied previously include serafinib, nilotinib, pazopinib, combinations of everlimus plus TKIs. All of these are based on phase two studies, which were all conducted prior to the approval of repretinib and some prior to the availability of regorafinib, so we're not quite clear how that translates to the modern era. We'll discuss later whether or not we can dose-escalate repretinib in some patients as a fifth-line option. For PDGFRA D842V mutagist, we could consider desatinib, or we could consider avapritinib um, off-label based on its activity for kit uh, exon 17 secondary mutations. Of course, we would all say that if there's an available clinical study in this uh, fifth-line setting, that that should be strongly considered. So we've talked about repretinib in the fourth line, but it's also been tested in the second line. Uh, Meg, could you comment on that? Sure. We have limited information on this study, but the intrigue trial randomized patients in an open-label fashion between repretinib, 150 milligrams daily, continuously for six weeks, to sunitinib, using the FDA-labeled approval dose of 50 milligrams once daily for four weeks on and two weeks off. These patients were randomized one-to-one, and the primary outcome of this study was progression-free survival. And uh, recently reported uh, in a press release and not in peer-reviewed publication, uh, the primary endpoint of this study was not met. So we look forward to hearing more information and understanding these results in a more detailed context. So we've heard a lot of the exciting information about how to manage advanced uh, kit mutant disease, but we also have made strides with PDGFR, PDGFR mutant just. So Mike, could you go through that the information with avapritinib? Yes, thank you. So to put this in context, historically patients with PDGFRA D842V mutant have not benefited from TKI therapy. Shown in the, the left is a, a registry study showing progression-free survival, uh, showing that the progression-free survival with patients with D842V mutant GIST treated uh, primarily with imatinib uh, is extremely short, less than six months, more in the range of three months. As shown in the right, it doesn't matter which agents historically that we've used um, for these patients, imatinib, sunitinib, or other TKIs, none of them have provided any uh, significant PFS benefit. So this remained an unmet uh, medical need um, prior to the approval of, of avapritinib in 2020. So avapritinib was intentionally designed to be more potent against these activation loop mutations of which PDGFRA D842V uh, mutation is uh, kind of our lead example. Shown here are examples of the potency of avapritinib against standard uh, kit exon 11 mutations, some kit secondary mutations, but importantly um, at the bottom, it's extremely potent with sub-nanomolar potency against the PDGFRA D842V mutation. 
So the this drug was studied in a phase one study known as a navigator. And so patients with metastatic gist um, following at least two lines of prior therapy, although this was changed later on to allow patients with uh, D842V uh, mutant gist without prior therapy to be included. But that came later in the study. So the standard phase one um, dose escalation was performed to identify the recommended to phase two dose uh, given as once daily dosing. And in particular, based on its preliminary activity against PDGFRA D842V mutant gist, a cohort of patients with PDGFRA exon 18 mutant gist, most of whom had D842V, was studied in the uh, dose expansion phase. Shown here on the top left are the progression-free survival results for the patients with the exon 18 PDGFRA mutations. The vast majority of them were D842V. And you can see that the progression-free survival here is uh, not currently reached. Um, The same for overall survival. And again, for historical context, uh, on the right, we see that the progression-free survival uh, curves were very poor for any of the previous agents. So these results have been transformative for the management of patients with uh, PDGFRA exon 18 mutations, the vast majority of which represent patients with D842V mutations. May, can you talk a little bit about the safety profile and additional clinical testing of avapritinib in advance, just? Sure. When I speak to my patients about avapritinib, I commonly tell them that this is a drug that is, in terms of side effects, more like imatinib. So we see nausea, fatigue, fluid retention as common side effects. Uh, One side effect that is different and uh, we'll speak more about in terms of management are the cognitive side effects. Um, So Melissa will help us with understanding how to Uh, evaluate this and uh, manage it. In summary, though, the treatment-related grade three and four events that occurred um, in uh, about 57% of patients, um, and really the most common thing is anemia and something to be uh, mindful of because it does contribute to fatigue as well. The phase one navigator trial in patients who had non-PGFR-alpha mutations in exon 18 did show a 22% overall response rate with 41% of patients having clinical benefit. This led to the testing in the third line setting of avapritinib as compared to regorafenib. So patients in this study were receiving treatment in either the third or fourth line and had not received regorafenib. This study also did not meet the primary progression-free survival endpoint. So, in thinking about are there other strategies that are being evaluated or looked at, looking at the data or trials that are ongoing, there have been studies looking at the role of immunotherapy combining nivolumab and ipilimumab. There have been some clinical benefit, but no significant responses. Cabozantinib, which is another targeted TKI with activity against KIT as well as VEGF receptors, has in a phase two trial showed a progression-free survival of 5.5 months and overall survival of 18.2 months in patients who had progressed against imatinib and sunitinib, which is 
significant in terms of that line of therapy. In terms of toxicity, this might be slightly improved compared to regorafenib, but has not been tested in the phase three setting. Combination therapies have also been evaluated with TKIs, and this includes imatinib with uh, benimetinib, which is a MEK inhibitor, and shown some response, as well as PLX9486 combined with sunitinib in a phase two trial showing a median progression-free survival of 12.1 months, which is quite exciting and is leading to a phase three trial in the second line setting. Regorafenib and bidimetinib is being currently studied with a MEK inhibitor. And there is a study that's looking at regorafenib in the first line. Lastly, DS6157A is an antibody conjugated to a uh, topoisomerase inhibitor, uh, which is being evaluated uh, in patients with advanced GIST. So Mike, I think we've gotten to the end. Would you like to provide us with a, a summary of the data that we have to date? Yes, so you know this is a very exciting time for GIST. Uh, I think the important takeaway message would be the treatment of GIST is no longer uh, one size fits all. Um, we need to be mindful of the line of therapy, but also be mindful of PDGFRA mutant GIST now has its own drug, abapritinib. And we will be leading in in the second half of our activity to talk about how multidisciplinary care is needed to personalize treatments. Uh, so we're not just giving lines of therapy, we're treating patients. In the last two years, we've had uh, two new treatment options be approved. And um, as uh, Meg just discussed, ongoing clinical trials lead to optimism that there'll be more approved agents uh, in the future. Having reviewed all of the clinical evidence for our approved lines of therapies, we now move into the second part of that, this activity where we talk about individualizing uh, the care. So we'll be harmonizing interprofessional care with evidence-based TKI strategies for patients with unresectable and or metastatic gist. And this will be a panel, panel discussion that will be led by our nurse specialist, uh, Melissa Hojas. Thanks, Dr. Heinrich. Care starts before treatment. We want to reassure and remind our patients that they have choices when a treatment plan is being established and that their clinical team will be there to help, guide, and support them through their cancer journey. The most important way the care team can help patients prepare for treatment is clear expectations of the possible good and bad outcomes, continuous ongoing education, and open, consistent communication. We want to ensure that the patients understand what upfront assessments are needed and why we are ordering such tests. There are many different types of testing required for the man management of GIST, such as routine blood tests and scans. And it's important to clarify and explain to patients that these tests may be more frequent at the beginning of treatment. For example, blood work may be done weekly, every two weeks, monthly, then every three months. And for scans, the patient's oncologist or clinic team will select the most appropriate time frame for imaging tests to detect potential recurrence or tumor status changes for that individual. The patient should understand the importance of biomarker or mutational testing and repeat testing if indicated. It's important to discuss their cancer staging and be prepared to discuss prognosis because some of my patients, that's the first thing they ask. How long will I live with this disease and will I die from this?
Reviewing the standard treatment options with the patient can be very helpful. It can alleviate stress. Knowing this information upfront can provide relief that there are more treatment options down the road if they should develop treatment resistance or progression of their disease. Other important considerations include assessing your patient's nutritional status. What is your patient's typical diet? Do they have underlying health conditions that place them at risk for malnutrition? Do they have allergies to certain foods? Does the patient have a surgical history that would pose digestion problems or absorption difficulties? It should be a priority to make a referral to your institution's dietitian or nutrition program as this can help optimize nutrition status prior to initiating therapy. It's important to assess the patient's support system. Do they have a support person like a family or friend who can attend appointments or can be on the phone during their appointments to write down important notes for the patient? Patients can be under a tremendous amount of stress and may not retain all of the information that is said to them. Patients should have a primary care physician to help coordination, to help with coordination of care, referrals, and simple, uncomplicated local management. Getting social work involved with your patients at diagnosis is key for both mental and physical needs, such as access to support groups, making patients aware of integrative therapy support. For example, at Dana-Farber, we have the Zacom Center for Integrative Therapies and Healthy Living. This center offers services like acupuncture, massage, Reiki, and yoga classes. Social work can help with talk therapy. They can help with transportation needs, such as taxi or plane vouchers. They can help with meals like gift cards for groceries and accommodation needs. Most patients may not live close to their medical center and may need help finding short-term or long-term accommodation. Encourage your patients to stop smoking and cut down on alcohol intake. And lastly, conduct the teach-back technique when reviewing the treatment plans. And education doesn't end here. It's continuous throughout treatment at every visit or managed over the phone. Supportive care is critical. The primary goal is to have good patient outcomes where the patient is getting the most out of their treatments. Supportive care can improve the patient's quality of life by helping them manage physical and emotional symptoms. It eases the coordination of care between providers. It can help with compliancy to treatment and it can help patients make the best treatment decisions. Importance of treatment adherence. Despite the efficacy of GIST treatments, adherence to treatment can, provide, can prove challenging and difficult. Treatment adherence is an important issue to discuss with your patients and expectations should be set prior to treatment initiation. Some helpful suggestions include keep a, keeping a calendar or paper diary and having the patient mark each time the medication is taken. You can find sample diaries online by going to the American Cancer Society webpage setting an alarm or an electronic reminder. And there are also easy apps that you can download on your phone or tablet. Storing the medication in a location where it is visible, where it is visible every day or aligned to your daily routines. Asking a family or friend to help you with the dosing reminders. And at our medical center, we have our pharmacist call the patient during the first week of dosing to go over administration directions, side effects, and answer any questions they may have. It's important also to discuss with your patient and to ensure that they understand that the clinical team may hold their doses or lower the dose of their medication to achieve a better toleration, minimize adverse events, 
or allow the patient to recover from side effects. In the following slides, we will be reviewing the management of adverse events via approved TKIs, and we will be including a patient case to follow along the standard treatment algorithm. Our patient, Carl, is a 73-year-old man who presented to the ER with iron deficiency anemia and abdominal pain. Imaging showed a primary gastric tumor with liver and peritoneal metastases. Patient is an avid golfer. Patient is an avid golfer with past medical history significant for mild hypertension, currently taking lisinopril, BPH for which he takes Flomax, and mild GERD taking Prilosec. Pathology report, and this is really important to highlight, showed exon 11 kit mutant disease. The multidisciplinary care team decided to place the patient on first-line imatinib at 400 milligrams daily. Doctors von Muren and Heinrich, do you agree with the recommendation? I certainly do. This patient has metastatic disease and upfront treatment with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's going to treat all of the disease makes perfect sense to me. I also agree, and I think the important point here to emphasize is that without the mutation testing, we would be unclear what we should be doing because the patient may not benefit from imatinib with other types of mutations. For kidexon 11 mutant gist, we know that this is the subtype of gist most likely to respond, and we know from randomized phase 3 studies that 400 milligrams is the appropriate target dose. AE management of imatinib. The most common side effects include fluid retention, including periorbital edema, and you'll want to discuss dietary recommendations with your patients, such as starting a low-salt diet. You can have them place cucumbers on their eyelids. This can help soothe puffiness and can also have a hydrating effect, reducing dryness and redness. Encourage patients to sleep with the head of the bed elevated, and you can also add an occasional diuretic to their medication regimen. Diarrhea. Patients may need to change their diet. The BRAT diet can be helpful to minimize symptoms. Encourage the patient to increase their oral intake of non-caffeinated beverages and add anti-diarrheal medications. Nausea. Take drug with a meal and a large glass of water. You can shift administration time, sometimes taking it at night. The patients may sleep off the side effects. And you can use an anti-nausea medication when necessary, or a daily premedication prior to dosing. Fatigue. Incorporate naps or frequent rest periods throughout the day. Do some gentle exercise daily, like walking around the block. You can shift the administration time, as well as encourage the patient to increase the protein intake by adding protein shakes, supplements, and protein water to their diet. You may want to work their labs work up their labs to rule out any iron deficiencies. Muscle cramps. Encourage increased oral hydration, replete electrolytes as needed, and patients can take a multivitamin with vitamin D daily. Rash. Skin changes may occur and may require referral to a dermatologist. Steroidal creams or ointments or oral steroids may be prescribed for treatment. And lab work abnormalities. You want routine monitoring of blood work, to include a CBC with diff, comprehensive panel, including liver function tests. So Carl was on imatinib at 400 milligrams daily, and he was also placed in IV iron infusions to treat his iron deficiency anemia. 
Carl tolerated imatinib very well. AEs included minimal fluid retention, especially periorbital edema, mild muscle cramping, and intermittent mild to moderate fatigue. After three years, there was growth of some lesions consistent with resistance. Dr. Van Muren, what would you recommend now? I think in general, when we see a patient like this, we assess how much of the disease is changing. And certainly if there's multifocal progression, we think this may be time to change the dose of imatinib or switch the therapy to a different agent, that being sunitinib. Uh, some patients feel very strongly that imatinib has worked for them for such a long time that they really want to try escalating the dose from 400 to uh, 400 twice a day or 800 milligrams. But as we discussed, that in general provides a limited time frame for disease control. So I think it's really a discussion with the patient about are we going to continue with a higher dose of imatinib or switch to sunitinib. So Carl was then placed on sunitinib, 50 milligrams taken once daily on a schedule of four weeks on treatment, followed by two weeks off. Considerations for sunitinib. Upon progression of imatinib, an important discussion you can have with your patient is administration compliance. Were they taking the medication at the prescribed dose? Did they miss any doses? And if they were compliant, then you know switching to the next therapy is the best option. I've seen a variety of ways that sunitinib can be administered. The recommended dose of sunitinib is 50 milligrams taken, one, taken once daily on a schedule of four weeks on treatment followed by two weeks off. Some of my physicians will start the patient at a low dose and increase as tolerated. And at our institution, we found that placing patients on continuous dosing schedule without breaks appears to be better tolerated. Side effects of sunitinib include hypertension. At the start of treatment, patients should monitor their blood pressure daily using a log to document the readings. Monitor for symptoms such as headache and dizziness, and you can initiate or add additional antihypertensive medication. Hand-foot reaction or palmar plantar erythrodysesthesia. Prevention is key. Have your patients start by using thick emollient creams such as Aquaphor, Utter Cream, Bag Balm, or CeraVe, and you want them to apply it to their hands and feet daily at the start of treatment. If pain, redness, or peeling occurs, patient might need to start using creams that contain urea, either over-the-counter eucerin with a urea or a prescription strength. Instruct your patients to avoid activities that could irritate the hands and feet. This is not the time to be getting up on ladders or doing house projects using tools or hammers. Avoid hot showers or hot water when washing the dishes. And patients should be wearing comfortable shoes, not tight-fitting. Dermatology referral can be very helpful for these symptoms. Additional side effects include nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and we have already discussed management on the previous slides. In addition to these symptoms, patients can also experience dyspepsia. You can instruct the patient to avoid spicy or high acidic foods, and patient may benefit from eating small, frequent meals throughout the day. And lastly, prescribing a PPI or antacid can be helpful. For weight loss and loss of appetite, try having your patient increase their protein intake in their diet, add dietary supplements, and refer the patient for a nutrition consult. Taste changes may occur as well as mouth pain, 
burning or redness of the mouth. Good oral hygiene is key. Encourage the use of children's toothpaste and non-alcohol containing mouth rinses, such as biotin products. Incorporate salt water and baking soda rinses to be performed up to four times a day. For some patients, prescribing magic mouthwash, which is a mixture of Benadryl, 2% lidocaine, and Maalox, can alleviate some mouth pain and help the patient take in more calories. You can have the patient apply this solution by using a Q-tip to specific painful areas of the mouth prior to eating. For some patients, a referral to the dentist might be warranted as they may want to prescribe dexamethasone rinses for mouth pain and inflammation and clonazepam rinses to help reduce taste changes. Fatigue, as discussed on the previous slide, you'd want the patient to rest, do some gentle exercise, you can shift the administration time of the medication, and again, labs to rule out iron deficiency anemia. Lab work abnormalities, continue with the routine testing of monitoring of the CBC with diff, comprehensive panel with LFTs and thyroid function tests, replete electrolytes as necessary, and add thyroid hormone replacement therapy if warranted. Okay, so the patient was on sunitinib 50 milligrams, taken once daily on a schedule of four weeks on treatment followed by two weeks off. He developed significant hypertension within the first month of treatment. Sunitinib was dose reduced to 25 milligrams daily and an additional antihypertensive medication was added to his regimen. He later developed intolerable diarrhea and moderate hand foot, which interrupted his golf game. After six months on sunitinib, imaging revealed new areas of tumor. Dr. Heinrich, what would you recommend now? Well, it seems that the patient is developing uh, evidence of resistance to sunitinib. We could consider changing them to continuous dosing. We sometimes get a little bit more mileage out of that, but in general, the standard treatment change would be to switch to third-line regorafenib. So the patient, Carl, was placed on regorafenib prescribed at 160 milligrams, taking once daily for 21 days out of 28-day cycle, the FDA recommended dose. Dr. Heinrich and Dr. Von Maren, do you agree with this recommendation? Well, I think as Dr. Heinrich said, this is the FDA uh, next-line therapy. I think one of the uh, important aspects of taking care of patients with regorafenib is that it may be best to titrate their dose starting at a slightly lower dose, making sure they can tolerate and then increasing uh, once they've shown they can tolerate the medication. Mike, is that how you manage your patients? Yeah, I agree. I mean, we know that less than only about half patients could tolerate this dose. So in patients who really need a response, I might start high and go low in people who have a lot of side effects residual from sunitinib, but not without, but not having explosive growth, I might start lower and go up. But the, the key is close, close management, close monitoring, um, because you oftentimes are going to need to switch uh, the dose or at least introduce uh, some dose interruption. So here are some considerations for regorafenib. We have here the same hand foot that we see in sunitinib. And what I would add here is I would want my patients and I would encourage them to soak their hands and feet in Epsom salt baths. And some of my patients also find a pumice stone helpful as this can remove dry dead skin. It can also soften calluses, for, soften calluses to reduce pain from friction. 
And lastly, it's probably a good idea to refer these patients to dermatology or podiatry at the first signs of hands foot so that the patient can be supported with their help. And similar to sunitinib, regorafenib can cause hypertension, diarrhea, loss of appetite, nausea, and fatigue, and the same recommendations can be applied from the previous slide. Hoarseness. Recommend good oral hygiene, stop baking soda rinses or salt water rinses, and if severe, refer the patient to the ENT. To and lab work would be the same. You want to monitor CBC with diff, comprehensive panel with LFTs and TFTs, and replete electrolytes as necessary. So Mr. C had some tolerability issues with regorafenib. He had grade three hypertension, painful callus formations on both hands and feet, moderate diarrhea with weight loss, and the patient's dose was reduced to 80 milligrams a day. Imaging at three months revealed progression of disease. Dr. Heinrich and Dr. Von Maren, what would you recommend now? So we're, we're eventually gonna to have to switch to repretinib in the fourth line. Depending on tolerance, since the patient's at 80 milligrams, we could consider going higher to 120 or 160 milligrams a day, but only if we thought the patient would actually be able to tolerate it and realizing that that probably will still not provide the disease control we're looking for. Yeah, this patient to me sounds as if their ability to tolerate a higher dose is probably not likely. And so I think repretinib is the next step for this patient. And I agree with that too. Thank you. The standard dose of repretinib is 150 milligrams daily based on the Invictus trial. The safety of repretinib was established across a broad range of patients and the Invictus population was the most heavily pretreated cohort ever studied in a phase three randomized fourth line GIST setting. Around 37% of patients have received greater than or equal to four prior treatments and some of the patients as many as seven. The most common adverse events included hypertension, constipation, diarrhea, hand foot fatigue, myalgias, decreased appetite, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, alopecia, and anemia. During the Invictus trial, no patients receiving repretinib required a dose modification due to hypertension. Myalgias was observed in 32% of patients taking repretinib and only 12% in the placebo arm. Treatment recommendations include non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and encourage the patient to increase their oral hydration. The most notable adverse event was alopecia. Alopecia occurred in around 50% of patients treated with repretinib as compared to about 5% in the placebo arm. This symptom is not common with other TKIs, and it can be very, very devastating to patients. Some helpful management suggestions include encourage them, encouraging the patient to gain support from their local hairstylist, using gentle shampoos, sun protection for the scalp, avoid excessive heat from blow drying, talk to the patient about picking out a wig prior to treatment start, Scarves, head wraps, or hats can be helpful. Meet with social work to discuss symptoms and talk to a dermatologist about prescribing medications. I know with our program, Rogaine was very helpful in the situation. Lastly, dose modifications are not recommended for alopecia and we would encourage that the patient remain on full dose to try to maintain the full clinical benefit of the drug. Due to these minor adverse events observed, patients reported an improved quality of life and general functioning versus placebo. And this is incredible news for a heavily pretreated population. 
In the Invictus trial, we also saw about 3 to 5% of patients developing cutaneous malignancies. This, was, this would be melanoma or squamous cell carcinoma. Some considerations include a baseline dermatologic assessment prior to initiating treatment and routine dermatologic evaluations during treatment. Repretinib can be managed without a dose modification or interruption in dosing during this time. If, patient, if a patient does progress, patients may benefit from increasing their repretinib dosing to 150 milligrams twice daily, and Dr. Van Muren will discuss the post hoc analysis. So in both the phase one trial, as well as in the Invictus trial, patients who progressed on 150 milligrams a day were afforded the opportunity to increase the dose to uh, twice daily. And they uh, evaluated the uh, progression-free survival two, which is that um, for the higher dose therapy. Um, and in both of these settings, um, there was some benefit. As you can see, uh, on the right-hand uh, graph, which evaluates patients um, based on their first-line therapy, yellow being placebo and the bold green being repretinib, that is the progression-free survival. Then the dashed lines represent patients who crossed over um, with a dose um, escalation. And you can see that there was continued benefit and an improvement in additional um, uh, overall survival benefit in both those who, um, in all patients who were able to dose escalate. The graphs on the left show the benefit in terms of progression-free survival and overall survival from in the phase one setting. What if the patient was identified as having a PDGFR-alpha D842V gist and received avapritinib? Avapritinib is now considered the first-line therapy for these patients. Common toxicities include fluid retention, as seen with imatinib therapy, and anemia. And thankfully, with avapritinib therapy, patients do not experience hand-foot. Clinicians need to be aware of, of neurological toxicity, which can present to mild to severe memory issues, change in personality, and bleeding in the brain. It's important to assess the patient's neurological status at each clinic visit. Instruct the patient to call with any signs and symptoms of mental status changes. For example, including patients may say they are misplacing their keys or forgetting conversations, and some patients will have trouble concentrating and retaining information at work. Prior to initiating therapy with avapritinib, it's helpful to have the patient discuss these potential symptoms with family or friends so that they can help report any mental status changes to the clinician team. Early recognition is key, and holding medication and dose reductions can be helpful. If the patient progresses from first-line avapritinib, you can consider clinical trials utilizing desatinib or repritinib. Supportive care gaps and shortcomings in current practice. We know that malnutrition is very common in patients with GIST. Consequences of malnutrition in cancer patients can include impaired functioning and quality of life, greater severity of cancer symptoms, decreased responses to treatment, increased treatment-related toxicity, and more frequent and severe complications, higher healthcare costs, and shortened survival times. Medical staff need to pay attention to and educate on the subject of malnutrition in patients with GIST to improve prognosis and reduce the consequences of cancer-associated decline. Collaborating with team members to enhance patient care. 
Because of the rapid changes in diagnosis and management of GIST over the years, it is essential to treat GIST with a multidisciplinary approach. The goal of care is to deliver the best treatment while also empowering patients and helping them maintain a good quality of life. The multidisciplinary care is a team approach involving a group of experts and healthcare professionals, such as physicians from various disciplines, surgical, medical, radiation oncologists, pathologists, and diagnostic imaging experts. Other cancer care specialists include nurse practitioners, nurse navigators, research nurses, social workers, dietitians, and hospital pharmacists. The multidisciplinary care team should be in constant contact, working together to achieve the best possible outcome for the patient. Communication is key. A coordinated multidisciplinary approach over the course of the patient's disease will serve to enhance communication among, amongst the GIST team members, reducing the risk of progression, optimizing treatment outcomes, and improving the patient's quality of life. Thank you, uh, Megan, Melissa, for uh, providing multidisciplinary uh, instruction on the treating patients with advanced GIST. It was fun to do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And thank you to the audience for joining us today. Um, just to briefly summarize, this is a very exciting time uh, in GIST therapy as we have two new agents approved in the last uh, two years. Um, so it's very exciting that we have more options for our patients. But as we've tried to emphasize, we need to correctly sequence these drugs to receive the optimal benefits for our patients. And we need multidisciplinary collaboration so that we can safely, effectively administer these medications. Thanks again for your participation um, and attention. And we hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CPH 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Decipher of Pharmaceuticals.